I'm speaking to Dr. Chris Trelliff from the University of Warwick in England. His work explores diversity in contemporary spoken English using participatory research methods. Here, he shares his perspective on the ways this work can reduce present-day conflict. Hello, Chris. It's good to have you here. You are a lecturer in English at Warwick University in England. Would you like to talk about your current research? Thanks. Um, generally, my research is in language variation and change. So for many language features, speakers have multiple options about what they can say in a given instance. And generally, I'm interested in why uh, in a particular instance, people choose one way of saying something over another, or more broadly, uh, how societies and how languages start to change so that, that speakers more and more often say one thing instead of another. Um, and I'm interested in these broad patterns, uh, both today and from a more historical uh, perspective, how languages change over time, and speakers change their selection of linguistic variants over time. That's very interesting. So we're all aware that people have different accents. You know, we hear this variation every day. What do you find particularly interesting about this kind of linguistic variation? A lot of the work I do is in the sound system. Uh, so I look very closely at acoustic features of speech and uh, a lot of the work I've done has looked at structural changes. Uh, so we find these huge areas of English language speech communities that, that don't seem to be in contact with each other, that don't seem to have populations moving uh, or, or obvious external motivations for uh, language changing the, the vowel systems, other, other features of sound system changing the way that they are. Um, and so uh, a lot of my research has tended to, to try to figure out why. I've become especially interested in historical data um, because in my work in a number of the sound changes that I was interested in studying, um, the explanations that existed in the research didn't really match what I was seeing in the data. Uh, so there were a lot of explanations that sound change A happened and because of that sound change B happened. Uh, and what I was seeing over and over again is that sound change B might have happened first and, and then also sound change A happened, but the sequence was wrong. Um, and so I began to, to try to look for older and older data to test those explanations for why sound changes were happening. Um, and in a number of cases, what I think I've found is that uh, when we came up with the explanations that we had, we just hadn't looked far enough back in the historical record. That sounds like an amazing resource. Uh, I had no idea we could get recordings that old. So how old are these recordings and how uh, much of them are, how many of them are? It's, uh, there's, there's a, a fantastic diversity of underutilized language data uh, in museums, libraries, archives. Many of these are just moldering on shelves uh, in, in the basements of archives who have, have so much data they can't deal with it. Um, and so, so it's, it's a very interesting process of trying to find where these recordings exist. And then really importantly, 
um, a, a part of my work is, as I'm doing this and, and, and taking advantage of this resource for my own research, also to make sure that it's collaborative and that, this, that these, these wonderful cultural resources are being preserved. Uh, so part of this work that I call historical sociophonetics, which combines a couple of different fields, uh, the sociology of language, linguistics, phonetics, the domain of, of linguistics that looks at sound systems, and historical linguistics, it, intentionally trying to do sociophonetic work on very old data. Um, part of, of that work is to uh, support the missions and the goals of these organizations that I'm working with. So it's great that you're helping to preserve th these resources. How much awareness is there of that these resources are there? These, these resources are um, often a hidden treasure. Um, and, and something that is jeopardized. So many of these are stored on old reel-to-reel -reel cassettes uh, or tape cassettes or, or other media that, that uh, we're, we're losing access to play. And because of the strain on cultural institutions of all kinds all over the world, there's just not time to catalog these resources, to make them usable. So it's very often the case that uh, there will be this, this box of tapes sitting on a shelf in a dark basement. No one will know it's there or, or no one will know what's on it. There's, there's a great risk to our common cultural heritage across speech communities uh, in, in losing this, this history that's stored in these collections. So you mentioned that you study different varieties of English and variation. What varieties do you find in these, in these archives? I mean, I, my work focuses primarily on English, um, and so I'm working in English language speech communities uh, and, and finding data, and of course that's, uh, that's, that's how I um, have moved into the, the, the work that I'm uh, interested in in the context of conflict and uh, trying to use linguistic research to reduce conflict. Um, but I think for people who are interested in this kind of work, it's the case that all over the world, in, in, in many communities, in many speech communities, in many languages, uh, these, these, there will be unexplored, unknown resources that can contribute to our cult cultural heritage uh, and to, to our, our interest in linguistics and knowledge of, of language. So you mentioned conflict. How is variation accents linked to conflict. That idea uh, comes out of a concept of linguistic gratuity. Uh, it's developed by Walt Wolfram and, and a number of other scholars uh, that as researchers we owe a debt to the speech communities where we work. Um, and and uh, I'm, I'm trying to tie into that with, with this historical sociophonetic work. Another extension of that in, in, in terms of the creation of public resources uh, around these uh, activities is I also try to commit myself to doing uh, engagement work that shares findings uh, from these resources, uh, that, that shares knowledge about how the human capacity for language works, and where possible to be an advocate for people uh, on matters that have to do with language. Depending on our language variety or varieties, we face social consequences for the language we speak. Um, and those of us who are not privileged to speak a variety uh, that, that carries 
prestiges, depending on the context that we're in, uh, we, we face linguistic penalties. Uh, so it's well known by, uh, through, by a number of researchers, but, but uh, famous work by a, a, a linguist named John Baugh and his colleagues showed patterns of, of discrimination that happened, that if you call about a vacancy for an apartment and, and use, in the case of John Baugh's research, an accent that sounded white, uh, he would be able to go view an apartment. If he called the same listing agent for the same ad at the same time and used an accent that sounded African-American, uh, suddenly the apartment wouldn't be available. Um, and these kinds of prejudices are well known in, in legal context, in employment context, in education educational context in every walk of life. Um, and so where possible, uh, part of this, this idea of linguistic gratuity is that uh, as researchers we owe a debt to, to communities to combat that kind of injustice. Part of the, the public outreach work that I've been doing with, with uh, work in the UK uh, started with this much more superficial work of using uh, work that I was doing to, to educate, to share knowledge about uh, linguistics with public audiences. That has led to a community group beginning to do work on their own variety and the linguistic discrimination they speak, uh, linguistic discrimination they experience uh, as, as, as speakers of Cockney, the, the traditional working class uh, dialect uh, of, of East London. And um, I've been doing work that I think is very exciting uh, with, with a group called, called Cockney Cultures, who uh, after coming into contact with facts about language, uh, recognized the discrimination that they face, the uh, ways that ideologies about accent uh, get bound up with ideologies about social class and criminality uh, and race and uh, a, a whole range of behaviors and qualities. Through that process of having linguistic data, sharing it through public outreach, uh, and then moving to seeing how we can use linguistic knowledge to help a, a, a group advocate for their language variety. So you, you explain that the discrimination and stigmatization that some people face because they speak a less prestigious variety and have a less prestigious accent is based on prejudice. Is it possible to combat or reduce this prejudice in any way or is it too ingrained? Yeah, I mean, you, it's, it's a really important question about how it is, whether it's possible to reduce it or not. Uh, of course, um, language prejudice is a very real and persistent fact of people's lives. It seems to be sort of a sociolinguistic universal that, that in any speech community, uh, some speakers will be dispreferred relative to others, and that's something linguists try to combat with facts about language. Um, but those facts don't, don't always work. Those, those prejudices are deeply ingrained. Language is still a mechanism where it seems to be tacitly okay to be prejudiced. Um, linguists sure haven't solved this yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but what is exciting, uh, I think, in the work that I'm fortunate to be involved in now is that uh, through a participatory research model, um, I'm, I'm, I'm working with this group, uh, again, Cockney Cultures, uh, who are, as a group of members of a speech community, 
actively trying to document uh, ways that they have experienced uh, linguistic discrimination and identities that are bound up with the linguistic discrimination they've faced uh, and to engage in genuine ways with institutional policies that perpetuate linguistic discrimination. Uh, an example that uh, they've used in their work is that the Mayor of London's cultural strategy from 2018, which was titled uh, A Culture for All Londoners, never mentioned Cockney, which is traditionally the language that's socially associated with London. And so ironically, in this context of a culture strategy, uh, where, where language was deeply embedded in recognizing the cultural diversity of London and multilingualism and the richness of language in that community, uh, ironically erased a, a traditional group. Certainly I as a linguist uh, can't point to any big successes I've had in, in changing society. But through this model of participatory research and helping use linguistic research and knowledge about language to empower a speech community to uh, address the linguistic discrimination they face, um, I, th I, I think that will be, and I hope that will be, a better, more empowering model to combat prejudice uh, than certainly than what I've been able to do from working at a university. So you've engaged very actively with the community. What has been the response of the community? Has, has it rekindled uh, a pride in their linguistic heritage, broader cultural heritage? Mm -hmm. um, people know uh, the, the, the prejudice they face, the discrimination they face because of their, their variety. People inherently know how important and essential language is to their identity and their being, and they know how they're defined and define themselves by the language they speak. That's a, that's a lesson that I'm learning from this, is there's no rekindling to be done. Uh, it's there, and the important thing is to uh, provide the resources to, to allow uh, that, that spark to ignite. Do you feel that this is making a positive and very real, tangible contribution to reducing conflict? My hope is that, that there, there's a process toward reducing conflict. If people are being discriminated against, there's a source of conflict. And by working with a group that is actively challenging the linguistic discrimination they face, I hope that that gives us a means to reduce that discrimination and in turn reduce conflict. At the very least, it's exciting when people who experience linguistic discrimination are recognizing it, engaging with it, calling attention to it, problematizing it, and then working toward uh, reduction of that conflict. But the exciting thing uh, for me is that by bringing uh, this, this historical interest in language variation and change together with public engagement, together with a model of participatory research. These things all get to, to come together so that recognition of, of why people do things with language, uh, what that means socially, how th these things have emerged historically can come together, I hope, to reduce harms in the present day. 
Thank you very much, because it's a very enlightening, I think inspiring model of participatory research which is contributing to reduce conflict today. Thank, Thank you, Alan.